you've got your Bible, uh, turn with me tonight to the third chapter of the book of Revelation. I want to continue in our study of the seven churches, and we come to the sixth church uh, in Revelation uh, chapter 3, six of the seven churches. We've got one more. While you're turning there, Kublai Khan was a Mongolian emperor who lived in the 13th century from 1219 to 1294. And if you study this out, if you consider the Mongol Empire at that particular time as a whole, Khan's realm reached all the way from the Pacific Ocean to the Black Sea, which is roughly from modern-day Siberia to modern-day Afghanistan. And the territory basically included one-fifth of the Earth's land mass. So it was a massive, massive uh, empire. And to put it in perspective, his empire included countries, modern-day countries uh, in Southeast Asia, such as Burma, uh, the Korean Peninsula, China, Laos, even parts of Russia. But in 1271... Kublai Khan established the Yin Dynasty, which assumed um, basically the role of emperor of China. And two years earlier, in 1269, he sent a request from Peking to Rome. And listen to this request. He requested a hundred wise men of the Christian religion. And so I shall be baptized... And when I shall be baptized, all of my great men will be baptized. Their subjects will be baptized so that there will be more Christians here than there are in your parts. So at the time, the Mongols were really wavering in their choice of religion. And as Khan saw it, the greatest mass religious movement that the world had ever seen could happen under his rule. And the history of Asia would have all been changed. But here's what happened. Pope Gregory X answered his request by sending two Dominican friars. And these guys made it as far as Armenia, but because of fear, they turned around, went back. And so instead of embracing Christianity, Kublai Khan and his Yin dynasty went on to embrace Buddhism. And so that passed what many believe was the greatest missionary opportunity in the history of the church. Now think about that. You know what an opportunity is, don't you? You look it up in the dictionary, it's defined as a favorable juncture of circumstances. An amount of time or a situation in which something can be done. And really the thing about opportunity is that it comes and goes. It's a brief intersection where a decision has to be made whether or not to capitalize upon the opportunity. So that's why I want you to look with me here at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, because here we find the sixth church of the seven churches of Revelation. And I've told you how each of the churches were dealing with a particular crisis. Well, the church at Philadelphia is facing a crisis of opportunity. We find here a profile of a church that was given great opportunity by Jesus. 
And because of their faith and their commitment to him, the Lord set before the church an open door, according to what he says here, and the possibilities for mission and for ministry really were endless. So notice with me what the scripture says, the church at Philadelphia, Revelation 3, beginning in verse number 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, and behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now notice it doesn't say he's going to give him a pillow in the temple of his God. I think a lot of Baptists have gotten that uh, out of whack there. They think a pillow it means to sleep in church. That's not what he's saying there at all. I'm going to make him a pillar in the house of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's a church that's been given great opportunity by the Lord. Now, just by way of context, the city of Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but ancient Philadelphia in Asia Minor. This was located approximately 30 miles southeast of Sardis, which we looked at last week. And the city had been established by the king of Pergamum, and because of his unusual devotion to his brother, the name of the city was coined. Uh, Philadelphia means brotherly love, love for one's brother. And so the city was situated so that it was located on the main route from Rome into the east. And it was strategically located at the borders of three major provinces. And so for that reason, in antiquity, uh, Philadelphia was referred to as the gateway to the east. It was a gateway city. It literally was a city of opportunity. It was also located in an area that was frequent... um, subject to frequent earthquakes, which meant that the citizens of the city were always having to deal with this kind of thing. In 17 AD, there was a major earthquake to affect the city, and uh, it affected Philadelphia in particular, and that years afterward, there were aftershocks. And history reveals that many of the citizens of the city chose to live just outside the walls or the gates of the city simply because of the frequent aftershocks of the earthquake-prone region. And so this perhaps is context for the Lord's promise there in verse 12, where he says that one who is given entrance to God's city will never go in and out of it. So though this was the youngest and perhaps smallest of the congregations here in these two chapters of Revelation, 
the church in Philadelphia receives nothing but words of praise from Jesus. There's nothing negative spoken about this particular church. That's unlike all the other churches with the exception of Smyrna, which I find it interesting that the two churches that were really dealing with persecution received no words of rebuke whatsoever from the Lord of the church. Because oftentimes persecution has this way of refining the church, purifying the church, and the church had its priorities in order. So based on what's said about their experience, more than likely the persecution that was happening in Philadelphia was these believers had been expelled from the local synagogue. Now, you know, often early in, in Christianity, in Christian history, uh, believers would meet in the local synagogues, and for a brief period of time, Christianity was associated with Judaism. But that stirred up a lot of conflict in the synagogue, and often the Jews expelled Christians from the synagogue, which meant that they lost their protection because Judaism was recognized as a religion by the Roman government, but Christianity, the Christians were sort of on their own. And because they refused to bow the knee and worship the emperor, they were subject to persecution really from all directions. So despite facing persecution and rejection, the Lord says that these believers had been faithful to him, and as a result, he's going to give them great opportunity. So one of the major lessons that we learn from the example of this church at Philadelphia is that faithfulness in the little often leads to greater opportunity. By the way, didn't Jesus have something to say about that? Luke chapter 16, he said, one who's faithful in a little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in little is also dishonest in much. Now you apply that to giving. Let me just use this illustration. Oftentimes someone says, man, if I just, if I just won the lottery, I'd give it to the church. I'd start tithing, to which I'd simply say, if you don't tithe on $10, you won't tithe on a million dollars. Because if we're not faithful in the little, we won't be faithful in the much. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says the same thing in Matthew 25 with the parable of the talents where a master goes away into a far country. He's going on a long journey. But before he goes, he distributes his resources among his servants. To one servant, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two. To another servant, he gives one. And he gives to each servant according to his ability. Well, the master then goes away. And the servant who had been given five, he doubled his talents. The servant who had been given two, he doubled his talents. But the servant who had been given one went and buried that talent in the ground. And he, listen, he did nothing with it. And Jesus says when the master comes, he's going to settle accounts with those servants. He rewards the two faithful servants, but he chastises the unfaithful servant. So the point is, we, God expects us to do something with what he's given to us. You say, I've not been given much. Well, listen, take what little you've been given and use it for the master's sake. He's given you opportunity, and that's really the point. So if you take this principle then and apply it here to the church at Philadelphia, you'll discover that this faithful little church was doing something with what they had been entrusted with. They were putting their resources, they were putting their energies, they were putting all of their, they were putting their opportunities that they had been given to use for Christ's sake, and he's going to give them greater opportunity. 
So honestly, if we really want to model as far as ministry is concerned as a church, I can't think of a better model than the Philadelphian model. What is true about a Philadelphian church based on this passage? Well, several things. The first is that a Philadelphian church is one that's conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. And that's the point there in verse number seven. Notice that the Lord begins by reminding the church a facet of his character that would be really pertinent to the crisis that they faced. That's true for all of the seven churches. Jesus begins by mentioning some element, some component of his character, and it's just what the doctor ordered. Whatever the issue was that was being faced by the church, well, it's the character of Christ, it's the person of Christ that serves as the solution. So notice the character of Jesus mentioned there in verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one, one who has the key of David, one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So it's interesting that the church is being reminded of the character of Jesus. Jesus is presenting the church with a picture of himself. And that's important to keep in mind because the goal of the Christian life is the conforming of our character to Christ's character. What is it that he wants with your life and my life? Ultimately, what is it that he wants with our church? It's that we be conformed to his character and image. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's talking about being conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul made it his aim and mission. Uh, he says in Galatians 4, he made it his aim, even to the point of anguish, to labor like a woman in childbirth, he says to these Galatians, until Christ is formed in you. What is it that he longed to see? What was true growth according to the Apostle Paul? True church growth was that Christ be formed in the lives of God's people. So we would call that discipleship, wouldn't we? Being conformed to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification. That should be your goal as an individual. That should be our goal as a congregation. You think about what Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself for her, That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot, not having wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, that's what the Lord wants for his church. And by the way, that's the process that he's taking us through now. You may get discouraged at times. You look around, you see imperfections in your church. We're not a perfect congregation. I know you've heard this before, but if you ever find a perfect congregation, don't join it because you'll mess it up. Because <laughs> none of us are perfect. But we're being perfected. We're people in process, aren't we? And there's a process by which the Lord of the church is conforming us, molding us, shaping us into his own image. So what does Jesus say here about his character? Well, he reminds the Philadelphians that he's holy. These are the words of the Holy One. And by the way, isn't that just a powerful description of who Jesus is? 
It's something that the demons recognized during the days of his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 4 tells us of a man with an unclean spirit who cried out when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demons recognize who he is and they tremble. And so to say that he's holy is to say that he's pure, he's perfect, he's altogether separate from sin. Hebrews 7 says that he's a high priest who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's ascended higher than the heavens. And just as he is holy, he desires for his people to be holy, both in attitude and in action. And then notice he says there in verse 7 that these are the words of the true one. He's holy and he's true. He's the embodiment of truth. And, and the word that's used there refers to one who speaks the truth and is always authentic as opposed to someone who's false and untrustworthy. So here's the character of the Lord of the church. He's holy, he's true. And he wants to see that same character reproduced in the life of the church. Holy and true. Well, I'll tell you something, you know, the world needs to see what a holy church looks like and what people who are committed to the truth and telling the truth and living out the truth looks like. Our world desperately needs to see that. Because let me just be honest, we've gotten foolish and we've given, we've given ourselves black eyes in the eyes of the world through a lot of the foolish behavior and immaturity oftentimes that we exhibit to a watching world. The world is watching. They're wanting to see if, whether or not what's in my life and in your life is real and legit. So he's holy, he's true. Verse 7 says that he's authoritative. He's the one who has the key of David. He opens it, no one will shut it. He shuts, no one opens. That just simply means as one who holds the key, he possesses the authority to open and close doors. I've got a key here in my pocket that unlocks the front door to my house. Nobody else in the room has that key. And it means that no one else in the room has the authority to open the door. And before I came here, I lived in two parsonages, and there were some people in the churches who thought that they had the opportunity and the authority to come and open the <laughs> door to the parsonage any time they wanted. But the thing is, if I gave you the key, you would have access to the house. That's the point being made here. Uh, this really is a verse taken from Isaiah 22, where the scripture says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open, no one will shut. He will shut, no one will open. That's prophetically fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The one who has the key is the one who controls access. And Jesus is the Lord who opens up the way of access into the presence of God and to know him personally is to come through the door that he has opened. Let me tell you something, as for the church, Jesus is the one with authority to open doors of opportunity. And aren't you grateful for that? He's the sovereign Lord. So a Philadelphian church is one that's conformed to the character of the Lord Jesus. Now notice the second thing. 
A second thing is this, a Philadelphian church is one that's controlled by Christ's power. That is, it's under the direction and the leadership of the Lord Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus builds on his reference there to the door from the previous verse, having spoken as one who opens and no one will shut, who shuts, no one will open. He now adds these words there in verse 8, Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So, So what's that referring to? Based on the context of the verse, perhaps this is referring to their entrance into his kingdom. Now think about how appropriate this would be, especially when you consider the fact that they had been shut out of the synagogue, forced out of the Jewish synagogues, put out in the cold, ostracized, but no one could shut them out of the Lord's presence. Isn't that just a good word? James Boyce says this, he says, when we read that Jesus has opened the door that no one can shut, and you realize that the verb being used there is in the perfect tense, meaning that Christ opened the door once and for all and that it stands open today because of a past act. We also realize that it's by his death on the cross for sin that he has opened this door. Aren't you grateful that there's a door that's open into the presence of God by means of a cross and an empty tomb? So open door, this suggests opportunity. You ever tried to get into a door that was locked? You ever locked yourself out of your car? Uh, It's not been too long ago. I went for a walk or a jog, and I took my key fob, and I thought that I'd have this bright idea of opening my gas tank and trying to hide my key fob in my gas tank while I walked so I didn't have to have it in the pocket of my shorts while I was jogging. Well, little did I realize that that automatically locked if it didn't have the key fob in my pocket. So I thought there for a while, I said, how am I going to pry this gas tank door open to get my key fob out without just messing up the paint of my vehicle and denting the side of my car? Well, after laboring and anguishing over it, I finally broke down and called the locksmith, and $75 later, I had my key fob back in my pocket. But it's frustrating when you're locked out of something and you want in. But Jesus says to the church, I have set before you. That is, by means of his authority, here's an open door of opportunity. As the head of the body, as the one who gives life and direction to the body, Jesus says, I have keys to open doors, as well as to lock those doors. You know, the scripture says that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. I've also heard it said that the stops of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He opens doors by means of his authority, but he also closes doors. And sometimes God will place a red light where we would rather have a green. And sometimes he gives the green light when we would prefer the red, which is why we've always got to seek his direction and not our own. So you'll notice here that Jesus mentions their works there in verse 8. I know your works. That's a recurring theme, a recurring statement throughout these seven letters. I know your works. Now he's not rebuking them for their works because their works have been Christ-honoring. You want to know why their works or their conduct was Christ-honoring? Because their character was Christ-honoring. 
So when your character is Christ-honoring, your conduct is going to be Christ-honoring because conduct flows out of character. I actually think there's a little bit more going on here. You you know what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, where he says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then the Apostle Paul says in verse 10 of that passage that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're trophies of grace. Faith in Jesus Christ is the proof of that. Yet, at the same time, God has prepared from eternity past some Christ-honoring works for my life and your life that you and I walk in those works to his glory, he's determined what those are, and it's the goal of the Christian life for me to figure out what those are. So where are you in that process? That's why prayer is so important. That's why involvement in the local church is so important. That's why regular interaction with God's word is so important in your life because God has prepared some works beforehand for you that he wants you to walk in, but he's going to lead you. You've got to be led by his spirit. So Jesus says, I know your works. And then he mentions their witness. He says, behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. So the Lord was at work in their lives, in the life of the church. He's empowering. He's blessing their witness to the lost city around them. And Wiersbe says that in the New Testament, an open door often speaks of opportunity for ministry. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He's the head of the church. It's he who determines where and when his people shall serve. This is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite images to use to describe his ministry efforts. Acts chapter 14 says that when they came together with the church, they reported all that God had done and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 16 talks about how on his second missionary journey, uh, Paul had attempted to go into the province of Asia to preach the gospel, but for whatever reason, he's prevented from doing that by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God shut the door. We don't know what the circumstances were or how God did that, but the door wasn't open. He then tried to go into Bithynia, which was on the southern shore of the Black Sea, but again, he wasn't allowed to go by the Lord because the Lord close the door. So there's two shut doors. What does Paul do? Does he call it quits? Does he go home frustrated? Does he quit? No. When he comes to Troas, there in the night, he receives a vision of a man from Macedonia calling for help, and he came to this understanding that God had opened a door for him to enter Macedonia, which is part of modern-day Europe. In fact, I want to show you a picture of it. This is a picture of Paul's second missionary journey. If you look on the screen behind me, Troas is right up here to the northwestern part of Asia Minor. The doors that God had closed that Paul had been trying to, he wanted to go into Asia, but he couldn't go because God closed the door. He wanted to go into Bithynia up here near the Black Sea, but he couldn't go because God closed the door. But here at Troas, God opens a door for him to go where? To Macedonia to Europe, 
And you know what's an amazing thing? His commitment to walk through that open door changed the course of the entire Western world and affected all of civilization since that time. Because that's where God was at work. Just because one open door, one open door, Paul took the gospel north and west into Europe, Italy, and the gospel gained a major beachhead from which it ultimately launched itself around the world. So you want to know why Christianity and the hub of Christianity, we talk about the West and the strength often of the church in the West, and I'm not to say the East hasn't had a sufficient witness because it has, but you see that Western movement there under the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul walks through the door. Now, do you think for one second that he perhaps knew how significant that that decision would be? I think he's just walking by faith, not by sight, living one day at a time, same way you and I live our lives. But here's what I'm saying. When God impresses something upon your heart and he opens a door of opportunity, don't discredit that opportunity, however small it may seem to you at the time. Because it may have eternal consequences that reap dividends for generations to come. That one person that the Lord impresses upon your heart to share the gospel with, whether it be a child, whether it be a neighbor, whether it be someone you, a, a total stranger, God impresses, he opens a door, you sense a door is open, you obey him, you follow his lead, and you walk through the door. Let me tell you, that's how God works, men and women. That's how he works. Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes this. He says, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened to me by the Lord. Colossians 4, he says, pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word. I know you've heard it said that the strength of the church is not its seating capacity, it's its sending capacity. And I believe with all of my heart that the Lord has opened up doors for his church. Doors for my life and your life. But if we're motivated by self-centeredness, then listen, we'll be blinded to those opportunities. So what are the open doors for serving God that you've been given? That's for you to find out. As you pray and as you walk with God and you follow his direction in your life. That's not to say it's going to be easy because opportunity seldom is easy. Someone said opportunity is missed by a lot of people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. (laughs) Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. You want to know what some of the adversaries looked like for him and how the opportunity to take the gospel to mass, what that looked like for Paul? Well, listen. You see the city of Philippi up there? You remember what happened to he and Silas in Acts chapter 16 when they came to Philippi? They were thrown in jail. Many stripes were laid upon their back, but at midnight they're praying and they're singing and they're worshiping God. And you can do that when you've been obedient. Hey, you can do that when you've suffered for the sake of your faith, yet you've been obedient because, listen, there's an intimacy and a joy and a closeness with God that you can experience through obeying him in the details, in the little ordinary decisions of life. 
Well, one third thing that I want you to see about this Macedonian, or excuse me, this Philadelphian church is that it's committed to Christ's objectives. Look at what he says there, verse 8. I know that you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. One person has said it this way, there's really a cause and effect principle at work in the passage, though you may not see it because the way that so many of our translations break one continuous thought down into two parts. Ray Stedman suggested that you could read that this way, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut because you have little power and have kept my word and not denied my name. So cause and effect. God opened the door for the church because the church had fulfilled certain criteria or conditions. They're committed to the objectives that Jesus set forth for his church. They're not doing their own thing there in Philadelphia. They're being obedient to him. And because they're being obedient, faithfully serving him in the little, he's going to give them more opportunity. So what were they committed to? Well, look at, look at what... The text says they were dependent upon his strength, where it says you have little power. He's not criticizing them there, but rather it's, it's, it's recognition of their weakness. They were aware of their weakness. They weren't strutting their stuff, but they had committed their weakness to him and to his strength. And the scripture says the upside down principle of the Christian life is that when we are weak, it's then that we're strong. When we're emptied of our pride, it's then that God fills us with his spirit So they only had a little. They didn't have anything like the last church we're going to look at, the seventh church, the Laodicean church. It was wealthy, but Jesus doesn't have a positive thing at all to say about the Laodiceans. The Philadelphians, well, they're poor. They've got little strength, but man, the Lord doesn't have a word of rebuke to offer. Then they're devoted to his word. Verse 8 says, I know you have a little power, yet you've kept my word. Even though they were small in number, the power of God flowed in and through this congregation. No doubt it resulted in people who were being saved. Lives were being changed. The gospel was going forth. They were obeying his commands. They took seriously their God-given mandate to share the gospel. And ultimately, they're designated by the Lord's own name. Jesus said they hadn't denied his name. That's an important statement because the name of Jesus always sparks controversy in an unbelieving world. There's something about the name of Jesus. It's because the name Jesus has power. At the name of Jesus, darkness has to flee, which is why it's often persecuted. It's why it's often used as a curse word in casual conversation. I've yet to hear anybody stump their toe and say, oh, Buddha. (laughs) And then one final thing about this Philadelphian congregation, they're covered with Christ's own protection. Even though they've been persecuted, put out of the synagogues, the Lord's not put him out of his own presence. He says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, 
I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That's a reference to the coming tribulation that the next chapters of the book will reveal. And we'll get into that in the next few weeks. But notice how the Lord says that his people are covered by his own special protection. He says that I'm going to make them pillars in the temple of God. Now, now personalize this as a believer. We're pillars in the temple of God. It's the promise that faithful believers will receive a prepared place, a sure place in Christ's own kingdom. You compare that to your situation in this life because it may ebb and flow. Circumstances may change. Just when you're, you feel like you've got a sense of stability, it seems like the rug gets pulled right out from underneath your feet. But how awesome is the promise that the Lord says to his own, I'm going to make you pillars in the temple of God. A pillar is a thing of permanence. There's nothing in this life, there's no power in this world that could ever remove me from the presence of God. And then we're citizens of the city of God. I never have to worry about coming and going in and out again. Again, you apply that to the cultural situation in Philadelphia, the earthquake-prone city. The ground always shaking beneath their feet, and that's a scary thing. But the Lord is reminding his people that ultimately your citizenship is in heaven. And that's a permanent thing. And then they're identified by God's own name. God says, I'm going to write on him the name of my God. You know, when you write, when you, when you write your name on something, it's a, it implies ownership. Every book I get, I always write my name in the fly leaf, the cover of that book with a pen. It's mine. I write my name in it. So when God's name is stamped upon those who belong to him, it's a sign of ownership ownership and that's your identity that's your security and that's the basis for all of our hope and all of our confidence isn't it I don't know about you but I want to make the most of the opportunities that God gives me as a believer I really do I don't want to let the time I don't want to let the opportunity slip by me because opportunity comes and opportunity goes and the day of opportunity will not last forever you apply that to salvation. You apply that to ministry. Oh, let's not squander it, men and women. It was John Greenleaf Whittier who said it best, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. It might have been. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Lord it is in the strong and mighty name of Jesus that we come and we thank you that you are the omnipotent one the Lord of the church the one who opens doors and closes doors and Lord you have from eternity past, prepared some good works for us that you intend for us to walk in. It doesn't mean we run out and do what we want to do, but it means that as we walk with you and as we walk in your word and as we rely upon the leadership of your spirit, 
We understand there is no such thing as insignificant service done in the name of Jesus. Every opportunity that we have to serve. Lord, this is an open door. And who knows what you want to do. So Lord, we give you the little that we have. We entrust it to you. May we be faithful. Lord, we're surrounded by an ocean of lostness right here. We work with lost people. We live beside lost people. Open some doors of opportunity, Lord, for us to walk through in obedience to the Great Commission. And so, Lord, we love you tonight. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said together, amen. Amen and amen.